invite you as always to turn to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, as we're working through that important gospel, the gospel that came sometime later, quite a few years later, in fact, from the what are referred to as the synoptics, which are the first three gospels that were written uh, pretty nearly the same time frame, and then decades later as John the Apostle John, as he was the last surviving apostle, was impressed upon to write another gospel, a spiritual gospel, something that is uh, certainly not exactly the same, but very complementary. It's supplemental to the things that have been expressed. Every bit the Word of God, every bit true, but in its disclosures, what we find is the revelation of Jesus as the Christ himself. So it becomes an important document for us in light of that to share with others that we're witnessing to. It's the intention of this writing, as John makes clear in chapter 20 and verse 31, that he's writing these things for that express purpose, that those who read them will see who the Messiah is and believe, and in believing have eternal life. And so that's what we're looking at. We've begun already. We've gotten through the prologue, and now we're on to these next three days that are three very crucial days in the life and ministry of the uh, John the Baptist who has come in from the wilderness now, or he's been raised in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness, rather, baptizing. And at this point in our three-day series, this is part three where we're looking at, we had looked at the investigation that took place with the messenger who was the forerunner in verse 19 to 28. And then after that, the next day, the text says, we go to the identification of the Messiah who was sent by the Father in verses 29 to 34. And now today we get to day three, the inclination of men who would become followers. So we're going to see what that looks like. What happens to people that see the Christ? We have that in true form, in physical form, in this record. The Christ has shown up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John is announcing this, and he announces it again. We've had that declaration already made once. Now it's the next day. So in this declaration or in this inclination of the men who became followers in 35 to 42, as we look at this together, uh, we're going to break that down in a fourfold way this morning. We're going to look at the declaration of the Messiah in verse 35 to 36. Then we're going to look at the revelation of the Messiah in verse 37 to 38. And third, we're going to look at the invitation of the Messiah in verse 39. And we will conclude, Lord willing, with the identification of the Messiah, verse 40 to 42. But for now, let's, let's read this portion together. John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he, was, as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, uh, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this portion of the inspired text, the eternal word, the authoritative word. This is the last word, the final word that will be throughout all everlasting, true and right. And Lord, it is incumbent upon us to rightly understand, first of all, what these words are saying, what the true intent and meaning is, and then find its application, why it is you saw fit to have this in our hearing here today, in our day and time. For, O oh Lord, we would see Christ. We would see him in all of his glory. We understand that's a spiritual exercise now that he has gone to be with the Father. We pray, O oh God, that you would be with us and allow us that sight, that we would see him in all of his glory, even as we press on through this crucial gospel, this important gospel, so thank you for these words and for this day and this time of worship. Be with us now. Bring understanding to us, conviction where it's needed, clarity where clarity, things need to be clarified. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. So throughout these verses for, from 35 to 42, as we're looking at the inclination, the men who are inclined to be to follow Jesus once he is revealed, once he is declared, we're going to see that there's three natural inclinations that we can note throughout this text from anyone who recognizes and receives Jesus as the Christ, not just a historical figure, not just a great teacher, not just a good person, but who is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, the long-awaited one, the anointed one. So there's three inclinations that we'll come to as we go along here in the text. But let's begin this morning with this first point being made here. This is the second declaration, the declaration of Messiah in verse 35 and 36. So this is the next day. It's the third day in this series. After this, we'll see John sort of fade away in terms of the text mentioning him until chapter 3, and we pick it up again there. But for now, this is the final day, and from there we see the disciples being called and inclined to follow Christ. So verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. These were disciples, make no mistake, these are disciples of John the Baptist at this point. So he's the forerunner of Messiah. He's the message who has been sent. He's the last Old Testament prophet. And let it strike you that this is the last Old Testament prophet standing face to face, gazing at the one who is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Get the moment. 
Get the moment. Amazing. Behold the Lamb of God. And so with this powerful and profound statement, this is a a declaration, and with it we're seeing the divine hand of God that's literally planting the seeds in the heart of those who would follow him, but those seeds that would ultimately germinate and flourish into the full body of Christ, the full bouquet of the bride of Christ will be presented in what started right here in this declaration. Behold the Lamb of God. This is, this is a sermon. This is, this is the, the one declaration that contains, that capsulates all of what a preacher should preach. Because the preacher should declare the Christ. If there isn't something seen of the Christ, who he was, of his accomplishments and what that means, then he's failed. He's failed. So in five words, behold the Lamb of God. This is, these are marching orders for everyone who would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see we're not even through the first chapter. We're barely, we're just a little over halfway through the first chapter. And it, remarkable in its power. It reminded me of Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which, of course, was a very uh, pivotal verse in the Reformation where it, impacting men is important to that Reformation as Martin Luther and others. For I am not ashamed of God, for it is what? It is the power of God for salvation to whom everyone, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the power of God showing up in the Christ to the whole world. Behold your God in Christ come to save you from your sins. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone. And here's the qualifier who what? Believes. Presented to the entire world, but believed by some. Hard to imagine, isn't it? But presented as the verse goes on to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's basically everyone. It's presented to the whole world and the word everyone is used. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone. He has died for the sin of the entire world. Sufficient is it for all. How can we present the Christ to you and you still reject him? That's the question. That's the question. Isaiah 53, 1 asks this. We heard it recited this morning. Who has believed what they have heard from us? These things have been preached for two millennia. Who has believed? That's the issue. There it is in a nutshell. There it is in a single word. Who has believed what they have heard? It is through the hearing of the word. You all know and are familiar with Romans 10. It is through the hearing of the word and the word preached, the preached, the word preached by everyone who has the Christ in them and would allow people to see him through the things that they say they believe. Who has believed what they have heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Who are these people that believe, that have heard, and that have believed? Colossians 1, 5-6, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing. We're seeing here today in our text the seedbed, the Lord himself, God himself, planting the seeds in the men who would turn when they hear, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they turn. This is a pivotal, literally, a pivotal and powerful moment in the turning concept they're turning from who they were, what they did before, and they're following the Christ because they see him. They believe what they heard. That's the bottom line. It's given to the whole world this that they heard, which is from the word of, word of truth, which is the gospel, as it, is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, For we know, brothers, loved of God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit full of conviction. These words that have just been unleashed by the forerunner have profound power to them because that's his appointment, which was prophesied that this messenger would come, the forerunner, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We talked about the metaphor that the wilderness is. The metaphor of the wilderness is the desert they've made of their religion. We need to make his path straight. We need me to not have him crawling over the dead lumber of the religion that we've handcrafted the self-imposed system of ethics that we've composed so that we can feel satisfied rejecting some, taking on others that we prefer like it's a buffet. No, you need to clear it all out. You need to make a path straight that he can come straight into your heart and let you hear what he has to say and let that transform your life. If you would follow if you would turn and follow, when you hear the word, behold the Lamb of God, he bids you to follow him. That ends up being the sticky wicked, friends. Would we follow? That's it. Secondly, the revelation of the Messiah. Verse 37 and 38. The two disciples heard him say this, Behold the Lamb of God. And they followed Jesus. So he's obviously been revealed and they've believed. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Why are you here? Why are you here? Hmm. And they said to him, Rabbi, a completely banal question comes. 
And he said, Rabbi, which means deeper, where are you staying? Let's review. The forerunner has come, declared, behold, the Lamb of God. And they started following Jesus. This is Jesus who is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. They're following him. They're not saved yet. They're not disciples yet. They're following. And that's what they ask him. Where, where do you live? <laughs> it's sort of anticlimactic, isn't it? That's it? That's the question. You've got Jesus speaking to you for the first time, the Messiah seeking, the Son of God speaking to you for the first time. What are you seeking? The most profound question that could ever be asked of any human being. What is it that you are actually seeking? Where I live? Like my mailing address? Okay, well, we understand the dullness is going to follow, isn't it? Even when they become disciples, and we find great comfort in that, don't we? (laughs) So the summary of God's message in saving souls is that Christ is proclaimed. Let's get this to a summary. Christ is proclaimed. Someone hears. They respond and follows. That, in simple form, is what it is. Jesus turns to look at them. And they, seeing him and hearing about him, turn and follow. The simplicity of the gospel, and yet the profundity of it and the power of it. Amazing. But they would soon learn what Oliver Wendell Holmes said, that it's the simplicity on the other side of complexity that has value. Not the simplicity beforehand. That's just naivete. Get your head out of this hand and walk forth in the life that God has called you with all of its complexities. And you will find out a simplicity that heretofore you didn't know. Because it is simple, isn't it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm part of the world. That's me. Thank God. What's required of me? I must believe that with all sincerity. So profound as a matter of fact, metanoel, my mind is changed in such a powerful way that epistrephal, I'm actually turning from my former life and following him and letting him establish what that way must be. And I start following in here. Here comes the complexities, right? Here they come. But you want... You want to press on through with him. He's in that furnace with you because on the other side of that is a simplicity that has immeasurable value. That's our gospel. We think, boy, it's just so simple. How can, how, how can people muck this up? It's not the gospel that's mucked up. It's who? Us, yeah. So here's that first inclination, as I see it from this text. Those who hear of Jesus, recognize and receive him as Messiah, are naturally inclined to follow him. That's a legitimate question to ask myself. Do I actually follow him? Or 
Do I want one foot in the world or do I want to sort of dial in what that looks like? Or am I actually taking my walking orders? In other words, how I comport myself in this life. Does it line up with his word? Or I've got to stop claiming that I follow him. Because not everyone who hears of Jesus and follows truly seeks him. That's why he asks the question, what are you actually looking for? What are you actually after? Because I suspect there's something in there that you've got intermingled in there that's mucking the whole thing up. I don't know if that's what he had in mind when he's saying it to them, but that's my takeaway for me. What are you seeking? As he knows that there are some of those that believe, that want to follow from chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, where it discloses to us that he knows the hearts of man. He knows. He knows their thoughts. I wonder why he's asking this question, this whom are you seeking? Zeteo in the Greek, this is a desire. It's, it's to look for. It's to wish for. It's, it's to strive after. It's, it's to endeavor. What is that in your heart? That's what he's asking. Otherwise, why would he say, what are you seeking? Because they just found him, didn't they? There's something a little more here. I find it intriguing too and very important actually that he doesn't say, who are you seeking? He already knows what the human heart is. It's typically striving after things in this fallen created world. What is it that you're seeking? Remember the guy that wanted to follow him and he said, wait, before you do that, I don't have any, I, I, he reveals his address, right? Where is it? Like nowhere. I've got a rock that I, you know, foxes have holes. I don't have anywhere to stay. You still want to follow? Oh, well, you know, look at the time. I'm actually interested in these things. Okay. At least you're being honest. At least you're being honest. It's not who are you seeking? Why didn't they ask that? Why didn't they say, you. It's not a what, it's a who. <laughs> They're not there yet, are they? <clears throat> They're not there yet. It makes sense, though, to ask this question when you consider that this is the most heart-penetrating question that you can ask anyone. That we, we seek to find this in biblical counseling. What is it that your heart is actually striving for? What did you want to accomplish when you, when you lost that job or got in that big argument? Or There's something that you're striving after that didn't have good fruit produced from it. What is it that you, that you want most? What is it in that heart of yours? So it makes perfect sense. I want to make sure your motives are right. That question right there, if, if we take it with all sincerity, is the most heart-revealing question that you could ask. And what is it that Christ is after, after all? Please tell me. A corazón, huh? The heart. That's what he wants. The heart. The cardia. 
It reminded me of some other verses. I couldn't help but to write them down to remind myself. First, Paul saying in Romans 3, 11, no one understands, no one what? Do you know the rest? Whoa. Nobody does. That's what he, that's what he came to confront, that there is no one that's looking. No one is looking for you. That's, like, that's why it's what are you seeking? Are you hoping that I can make your life better? Oh, you're waiting for a conquering king. That's it, right? You want me to relieve you from Roman oppression. You want me to start, you know, forming the army to take on Rome. What is it that you're after? Because you don't want them taking your money away from you. That's Oh, that's what it amounts to, doesn't it? You, you, you don't want them taking your money away from you. You don't want them taking your prestige. You've got this, this dead religion that you're part of and all of your phylacteries and your robes and your tassels and your rabbi's hat. You don't want that interfered with. Psalm 14, 2-3. How about this for a wake-up call? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so we hear in Isaiah and in chapter 55 of Isaiah, verse 67, that's right after chapter 53 that was read this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. See that turning? And the, un- and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. See the thoughts we were talking about? How that important the thoughts are, our thought life. We're talking about in the first hour. Let him return to the Lord. Turn, follow, that he may have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Or Jeremiah 29, 13 to 14. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All, all, not part. Don't parcel it out. He doesn't like that. He rejects that. I'm giving you, I've compartmentalized my Christianity. I hope that's good with you, Jesus, because during the week I'm busy having my heart wrapped around this and my heart wrapped around that. But you know what? I'll try to get to church if I'm not too tired and then I can check that box and uh, and feel virtuous and feel like I belong to you. Wearisome, isn't it? You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's what he wants to hear. That's Psalm 27, 8. All the while, God is crying out through his prophets. Amos chapter 5, verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. Now it's all of us, right? Seek me and live. Turn ye, turn ye through Ezekiel. Why will you perish? Isn't pleased that you would turn away from him and bury your heart into the things of this world. That trash heap that John is declaring and proclaiming, get rid of it. Cleanse your hearts because Messiah's here. That's his house, your heart, and he won't share it with anything or anyone else. 
Or Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. So now we know what it takes. I have to get over myself. Oh, that's going to be tough because see, pride is what? Self-masking and self-preserving. Yeah, you don't see it. It's protected because it wants to be, it wants to live because it's you. It's the self. It's the fallen self. So it's like, what, what pride? The humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Or Psalm 69, 32, when the humble see it, notice the sight. It takes humility. I, I'm the greatest obstruction, the greatest set of cataracts to my vision of seeing the Christ, to be able to follow him. It gets more and more blurry when more and more of my flesh and the self of me is following more of my own way. When he wants all or nothing at all. The humble see it, and when they do, they will be glad, you who seek God. Let your hearts revive, and they will. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me. That's it. We say we do. You can't measure that out for him. Here's your portion. Here's the time and energy and thoughts and affections I'll give you. But then I've got a lot of time and energy and affection for these other things. He sees that, and it's a big grief. I love those who love me and those who seek me, diligently find me. That's the qualifier. It's diligently. So we're going to see what happens with these who were disciples of John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist sees the fulfillment standing right before him in bodily form and says, Behold, it's time to pass the baton on onto Christ. And he does. And so they turn and follow. Andrew is one of those. And it's thought that John, the writer of our gospel, is the other disciple that's not named. So we'll see. Do they last? Will they make it? Psalm 70, verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. That's the point. My heart completely, unreservedly given over to my Lord. May those who love your salvation say forevermore, God is great. So this question that he's asking, what is it that you're actually seeking? What are you seeking? What are you after? It's not just any question, is it? This is the question meant to expose the true desires of the human heart. I wanted to be sure that's in the outline for you. And for me. It exposes the heart. Every good biblical counselor wants to get, if they're going to truly help somebody with the word of God and the Christ who do their work in the same place always, and that's in the heart, not the behavior will follow. As the heart goes, as the thought life goes, so goes the behavior. So go the path. You follow the things you love most. You know, I meant to do this. I meant to do that. Maybe. But I have a phrase that I try to apply to my own life. You really do the things that are most important to you. We like to favor ourselves in the things we say and champion ourselves as being virtuous followers of Jesus Christ. But it's like, what portion of me is doing that? What portion of my heart? So this question obviously is meant for us all. What is it that you are seeking? 
Have you set a course to obtain whatever that is? This is another other questions Jesus could ask people. Most people let their passions or their circumstances set their course in life. They do. Well, I can't do this. A lot of people are go through life like a defeatist, really. Like they're not more than conquerors. Like they haven't had a perfectly plain path set out before them following Jesus Christ. It's like, well, I guess that didn't work out. I guess I'll go over here. That didn't pan out. I'm going to try this. It's, it's sad how some Christians can live. So one writer said, God has made us for something other than that we should be the sport of circumstances, end quote. The plaything of fate. <laughs> What's, what is that anyway, fate? I don't know. They use a lot in the culture, though, don't they? What are we looking for? I, I, I started to write a list of things that I thought were important and compelling for us. We're, we should be looking for meaning, yes? Purpose, security, love, acceptance, peace, contentment. Where are all those things found? In Christ. So when we do meet with people in the private ministry of the word, when they're suffering and there are things going on in their life, this is the person we continue to try to point them to. It's a who, not a what. As Elizabeth Elliot said, I, I, when I'm suffering, I, I don't need an explanation. I need a person. I need Jesus. So point them back again. See, it's a matter of seeing. There's a matter of you and I saying, behold, in a sense, in how whatever form that comes out of our mouths, behold the Christ who gives you these things, all of them. You don't have to wonder what gender you are. We don't laugh and mock these people who are struggling in this dysphoric way. We simply say, that's not a question. That's a settled issue by your designer, by your God, that you should find encouragement by that. And they want to shut down those counselors that are using the word of God that would be contrary to that. That's been the battle of Steve Byers in his church up in Lafayette, Indiana. Pass a law saying no conversion therapy, which we don't do conversion therapy. That's got a history to it. They've, they've used shock therapy for homosexuality in the dark past, all that before. But what they've done is they've conflated that with biblical counseling because we convert. So no conversion therapy. Anybody who speaks against what this person's going through and has decided in their mind, even as a child, will face jail time. I know. It's cool. It's, we're in crazy land, yeah? This is, this is crazy. Meaning, purpose, security, love, acceptance, peace, contentment. These are like the major categories of what everybody's striving after. And the world is just wandering around in a, in a sometimes chaotic but definitely confused way, trying to find these things in everything in the fallen created order instead of the one who can bring it to them. And that is Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus 
is the living water that alone fills up the heart and also satiates the thirst of the soul, the only one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, earnestly, this is with all sincerity, yeah? Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. It's a person. It's the highest being. It's our creator God. It's the almighty. It's El Elyon. God most high. That's him. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's the right answer, isn't it? That's a right understanding of from whence cometh satisfaction in any of those main categories that I cited. John seven thirty seven to 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, what? Go to the well and, no? What is it? He's a person. He's a person. You, you present a person. The mantle of proclamation has been handed to you. You're the ambassador. Behold, I want to tell you about my Jesus, my Christ. Therein I found my solace. Therein and therein alone have I found my peace, both internally and externally. Therein and therein alone have I learned how to be a proper human being by design. Come and see him. Get to know Him. Follow Him. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, out of the believer's heart, will flow rivers of living water. You, you have that to offer. Rivers of living water for those who are thirsty. Sad that some Christians get intimidated when Jesus made it clear, and this frightens me, if you're ashamed of me, what does he say? It's hard to repeat, isn't it? What is it? I'm going to be ashamed of you when you come before my Father. We're presenting a person. The simplicity of the devotion that we dare to have in him Well, they're having a time downstairs, aren't they? <laughs> I want to party with those kids. I love my small church. So why does he ask what we seek when he already knows what we want? I just give you the questions that come up in my mind, in the study. Why does he ask what we seek? What do you seek when he already knows? Right? He knows the hearts of all men. That's why he rejects some in chapter 2. Because Christianity, in its 
fundamental essence is a relationship. It's communal. It's, it's almost tantamount, at least in my mind, to saying, whom do you really or what do you really love? He's not going to force that out of you. He's not going to say, I can see your nasty little heart. I know what you're after. He's kind. He's patient with them. He can see their hearts. Yeah. It's just, it's just it's such a beautiful scene. He wants us to be seeking good things. He wants us to be hurting and striving after the, the healing, the answers to things that profoundly complicate life for us. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? Lord, you know that already. You remember when Peter said that to the Lord in chapter 21 at the end of our gospel? Lord, you know these things. Why do you keep asking me if I love you? You know all things. How humbling. But he was restored there on the spot. There's a process there. There's something God is doing there. There's something Jesus is doing there. By asking us that question, by asking them that question. What do you want from me, Lord? You know that I love you. Do you love me more than these? What are, by the way, not to get personal, but this is my job. What are the these in your life? You know I love you. Phileo. You're a good friend. Well, at least you spoke rightly. Do you love me more than these, though? I think it's the fish he's talking about because he was out fishing when he was going to make him a fisher of men. What are you doing? You go back to your own way, old ways in the world? If you want to be fully restored, get the point here. Do you love me more than these? You know all things. He finally gets it, and it's embarrassing. Quit asking me. Leave me alone in my struggle with my flesh and the things that I actually desire. I'm not going to leave you alone because I love you. I love you too much to do that. I'm going to let you run the full course of the things that you actually do love until you get a belly full of yourself and life starts to get even harder. And when you turn to me, I'll be there for you. But run yourself ragged. Run yourself amok with what the world has to offer. And when you see that that's nothing but a counterfeit and you hear the laughter of Satan in the background and you realize I've been duped. Oh, how I've lost years of my life buying into what? To that which is perishing? To that which is an offense to God? And yet we bear his son's name? Are we that bold? Yeah, we are. God help us have mercy. Matthew 7, 7 to 8, ask, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Number three, verse 39, the invitation of the Messiah. He said to them, the two disciples, at least the two that are named mentioned there, come 
and you will see. He could have dropped the hammer here, couldn't he? I mean, especially if he could see what was really in their heart. That's what generated him asking the question. He, does he need to ask questions? Did God need to ask Adam, where are you? Are you kidding me? He doesn't need to ask this question either. He knows exactly what we're seeking. That's borne out in our behavior anyway, in the words we say, and the things that we strive after, the things we grow affections for in this fallen place. Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. This is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So they stayed with him for the full day. His response to them after being declared the Savior of the world, come and you will see. Is that not a loaded statement? Is that not a massive offer? And what are they probably thinking? Oh, cool. <laughs> what are we eating? <clears throat> this sounds like fun. <laughs> come and see. How affable was he? How, how generous. How hospitable. He's so gentle. He's so kind. He's so good. Come and see. He's the God of the universe, so he, he, he doesn't have to he doesn't have to over-embellish this. He doesn't have to uh, try to uh, placate what their desires are. He doesn't have to do any of those things. He just makes a simple statement. See, that's the profound simplicity on the other side of complexity. There's not, no more complex being than God, and at the same time, wonderfully simple. The perspicuity of Scripture, the understandability, the utter understandability of Scripture, it is plain so that we are without what? Excuse. That's Romans 1. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Ryle said, at best, it was probably some humble lodging. It's not impossible that it was nothing more than a cave. If that's the case, just entertain that, if you will, for a moment. Yeah, why don't you come and see what I've got? Man, awesome, because this is the king, right? So, He's going to, this has got to be some place. I hope I'm dressed all right. Do I got the right robe on? Sandals? These are my old sandals. Oh, anyway, let's go and see. This is the king. Why do you call him a lamb? They know why. Is the Paschal lamb? Is it the, the daily offering? of lambs for the sacrifice of sin. He's a lamb. Why a lamb? All a lamb is good for. All a lamb is good for is to sacrifice. That's what we do with a lamb. Everybody knew that. That's what they practiced every day, every week, all year long. The place is covered in blood. The blood of the Lamb. Go and see where I stay. A field, a cave. There's a point there, an important point. If you truly seek Him, you will find Him. That's, that's the point. And when you do, He will reveal Himself and, and truth to you. That was His promise to us, right? 
So this invitation that he gives, if you seek him, you will find him, you will follow him, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. That's his promise. But we, we don't write that ticket. We don't, we don't dial that in in ways that accommodate us. He invites us to follow him, looking unto him with eyes of faith. We can see him and hear him. It has to be with eyes of faith because the whole issue is belief, isn't it? That's why I like the New King James Version of Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved. Don't get distract, distracted by the baubles and the glittering lights of the things of this world. That's what the enemy's trying to do. If he can't make shipwreck of your faith, he's going to make you nearly useless as a witness for Christ because you look just like they do. Our attitudes are the same. We dress the same. We go after the same likenesses, preferences, same entertainment, same amusement, same humor. Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The text says, and they stayed with him. That's a beautiful concept. In the King James Version, it says, they abode with him. I like that. We abide with him. He invites us not to just come to his cross to be saved. That's amazing enough. He says, no, this is going to be an indissoluble union with me. I am going to be in you and together we will be in the Father. Are the Father's in me? And it's like this, whoa, wait a second. This is mind-blowing. Second inclination. Those who hear from Jesus Christ and believe in Him are naturally inclined to want to know more about Him and be with Him. Those who truly have seen the Christ and embraced Him as their Savior want to know more about him. That's the part where you constantly drink from this well. And he provides the living water that alone satisfies the thirsty soul and the hungry heart. Jesus' invitation is simple. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Our souls know no rest until we find ourselves abiding in Him. In down home. Him in our hearts. Us in Him. John fourteen twenty says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So looking at Andrew and possibly the Apostle John, the eventual Apostle John, whoever that disciple of John the Baptist was, are you ready to leave all of that behind? The others. How about the other fella? Remember the other fella? Listen, I'll be right with you, but I've got to stick around to get the inheritance from my father's death. Or the rich young ruler. I've got all of these riches. What do I lack? I've kept the commandments from boyhood up. Okay, great. That's awesome. You're you're pretty 
self-righteous. Why don't you sell everything then and come and follow me? He's saying the same thing here as he's saying to the rich young ruler, come and follow me, come and follow me. And you'll see, come and live the life that I live. And you'll understand what it means to actually follow me. Because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will live the way I've called you to live because that's what's been lost. And I want it back because it means your eternal salvation there's no important issue in the world to any living soul than that. What could possibly outweigh that in importance? John 17, holy ground right there. This is the high priestly prayer. John 17, 22 to 23, that they may be one. This is Jesus praying to the Father. This has its own special place in all prayers, doesn't it? that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them. And even as I loved, you have loved me. That is profound, folks. Fourth, and finally, the identification of the Messiah. Verse 40 to 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Christ is the Greek term and Messiah is the Hebrew. It's the anointed one, the one we've been hearing about our whole lives at the synagogue. This is this is him, the one we've heard about in the temple. This is him. So the third and final inclination that we can see, a person who's seen and received Jesus as Messiah is naturally going to be inclined to declare it to others. When's the last time I proclaimed Christ to someone else? If he fills me, if I'm filled with the love of God in Christ, Romans 5, 5, that love must compel something. Yeah, he's given me this voice. We talked about this this morning. This voice has been given for a reason to express the true affections of my heart. If it is indeed for him that you can't hold that message back, I'm going to tell you about him. Because you need to see him. And right now, because you're dead and blind spiritually, you can't. I get that. So was I. So let me tell you about him in great detail. And hopefully by the, the, the whole of our prayers that you will see him. And if you have, you can hear Jesus saying, as he said to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, that because it's not flesh and blood that revealed that to you that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. My Father revealed that to you. Just remarkable. So no one has to remind you. Nobody has to compel you. Nobody has to nag you. You don't have to take an evangelizing course. This, this person who is the Christ fills you. You are filled with him. You, you can't restrain it. You must speak it. You're naturally inclined to do it. It reminded me of the woman at the well, John four twenty nine to 30. 
We don't have time to go through the whole exchange, but here's the summary of it. When she suspects who this is, she's got sight. And she says, so the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. There they go. She spoke and they saw. Behold, and Andrew and the other disciple went and followed. That's the power of the gospel. The first person Andrew told was perhaps the closest person to him. Who was it? It's not like we have to go shouting down the streets. If you want to, that's cool. But we don't really have to look at it that way. You can restrain yourself long enough to say, I can't wait to tell my brother. I can't wait to tell my brother. Some of you may have had such a brother. I do. I do. 32 years ago, said. Come and see. Come and see. I came and I saw. And he told me everything about me. How could he know these things? Every wicked little thing revealing himself to me. I'm sorry, it's a little tender because I just received that email from him asking that I would do his funeral. We love Peter, his brother, and we love our brothers and sisters. We, we love our parents. We love our children. That's a good place to start, isn't it? They need to hear. They need to see him. So Peter owes his initial sight of the Christ to Andrew. You'd think that Peter would be the big shot here. Because he's always the leader, isn't he? After they become disciples of Jesus Christ. It's Andrew who said, come and see. We found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus, verse 42, looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, rock. But I can't get past the clause where it says he looked at him. He looked at him as he does every one of us. I know who you are. I knew you from before your birth. You were mine. And I will come and die for you. And when you come home in heaven to be with me, I'm going to hand you a white stone and it's going to have your new name on it, which only you and I know. Who is this? 
Who is this? He looked at him. Emblepo in the Greek, it's to look on, it's to observe fixedly. He fixed his eyes on Peter. To gaze upon, to discern clearly with a look that he knows exactly who he is. Just what the Samaritan woman said. He knows, suddenly I find myself entirely transparent. Who is this man? Could it be the Christ? Could it be him? Because the Samaritan woman, as much as I need salvation for who we were and what we've done, Finish with Psalm 102, 19, 22, and we'll get ready for communion. Of God, it says, He looked down from His holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners. <laughs> to set free those who were doomed to die. If these things don't pierce our heart, I wonder if anything ever will. To set free those doomed to die that they may declare in Zion the name of Lord, that they may declare the name, that they may declare the name. Behold the Lamb of God who took away the sins that I've committed in this world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away all the sin of the world, all of my sin, then, now, and in the future. In the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem, His praise when His peoples, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I am so humbled and in awe of You. May you be met in our hearts with a profound love, awestruck in our countenance by what you've come to do and what you are doing. Lord, be with us now as we commemorate with symbols that represent your body and your blood sacrificed for us Oh, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that hasn't seen you before in this life-changing, life-saving way, they would now be reconciled with you by saying, I have seen the Christ. It's him. May we recognize you, O oh Lord, and be grateful and follow you all the days of our life that you might be glorified, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.